Hello and welcome to the last Talking Finance for 2017. Now what a huge year it's been for all investors and for us here at The Constant Investor. This week to wrap up the year, I'm talking to Patricia Carvellis, host of Radio National Drive and The Carvellis Show on Sky News, to give her verdict on the government and politics generally this year. Shane Oliver, Head of Investment Strategy and Chief Economist at AMP Capital, looks at the markets and specifically, as the year ends, the impact of the US tax cuts. And Stephen Kukoulos of Market Economics looks at the economy and specifically the mid-year economic and fiscal outlook. Joining me now is Patricia Carvellis, who's the presenter on Radio National Drive and also has a weekly program on Sky. Well, Patricia, I think you've got a pretty interesting perspective, uh, you know, on politics in the year uh, with your drive show and the weekly show on Sky. Um, uh, what's your, what do you think about it? I mean, uh, it seems to me it's been a really terrible year for Turnbull, but he's ended up okay. What, what do you think? Yeah, look, I think he has survived the year. And given he has had a really difficult year, I mean, the citizenship crisis alone, let alone the various other issues he's faced, has meant that he's had absolutely no clear air to prosecute any of his agenda, to, to have an argument that lasts for more than a day, to have a policy that lasts a 24-hour news cycle. He just hasn't been able to do that all year. But he has ended the year, I suppose, in, in better shape than anyone anticipated, and certainly than I even anticipated a couple of months ago, when the citizenship crisis was in full swing, it really did look like a number of MPs could fall. But we've ended the year where two by-elections are already done and dusted. He's survived Benelong, which I think, you know, sure, now, you know, with, with the benefit of hindsight, people argue, well, it's a safe Liberal seat. They had a star candidate, Labor, and they weren't able to really take that margin forward any more than a sort of standard by-election. That's a very good result for Malcolm Turnbull. He is lucky, of course, that it was in Benelong where, you know, the sitting member, John Alexander, had seen a swing to him at the last election, which was certainly very rare if you looked at all the other um, electorates. He obviously had a win in New England with Barnaby Joyce getting his Deputy Prime Minister back as well. I think that's to be expected, again, a, a pretty, you know, safe, safe kind of seat. So both of those he survived. He's survived his leadership. Now, I think that's, I feel ridiculous saying that because I don't think there was any real prospect that he was about to be rolled. But we know that Canberra gets a bit kooky at the end of the year and the killing season is strong. It's, it's certainly it's something people are very used to doing now, given we have become experts in this country at rolling prime ministers. And given the number of news polls he's lost in and the general confidence of his backbench is quite low. I do think there was you know, a genu genuine view that this was a hard one for him to get through. But he's ended the year strongly. My ethos has come out. The numbers are, are better than you know the government probably expected. And I think given that, he can go into summer recalibrating. But um, sort of th that leadership talk and really underlying the politics of the year has been this rumbling civil war within the coalition, which seems to not have gone away, particularly with the, um, you know, with the new cabinet uh, and in particular the sacking of Darren Chester. And I, w I wonder how, what's your view on that, whether that's going to continue or are we seeing the end of that kind of um, conflict between the moderates and the, right, uh, and the extreme right? <laughs> I think in Malcolm Turnbull's 
fantasy it will end, uh, but it's a fantasy because it won't end. Look, the civil war in the coalition is actually quite deep and has many levels, more levels than we have time to talk about, many levels. And I think the same-sex marriage debate was a really good example of its execution. I mean, that was a proxy war for some bigger fights in the coalition. Now, that's ended, and I should have put that in the the to-do list, you know, with a big tick for the Prime Minister as well, because he's ended that and therefore all the disunity around that. But that doesn't mean the disunity goes away. It just transfers itself into other issues. We've seen it happen before. I think the issues we saw in the Nationals and the dumping of Darren Chester are pretty specific to the Nationals. Uh, I don't think they're, you know you'll see a bleed over into the Liberals. But, of course, it affects the coalition and the partnership more broadly. So it does have ramifications for the Prime Minister. I think, to be honest, and you'll find most journalists are arguing this at this point, I hate to be on team journalism. I like to sometimes be a bit of a dissident. But on Darren Chester, I can't be a dissident. He has been a pretty successful cabinet minister. He's a good communicator. I think he's a very modern national. He finds it quite frustrating, actually, the way that he's depicted as some kind of bleeding heart um, moderate. He's not. He's just, as he says, a modern guy. I mean, he's in touch with rural Australia. And one of the issues many people challenged him on, at least internally, if you hear some of the um, bitchiness in the nationals, was same-sex marriage, where, of course, he was a very early supporter Well, if you also look at the results of the same-sex marriage postal survey, rural Australia overwhelmingly voted yes. So you you could argue that uh, Darren Chester is out of touch, or perhaps you could argue that some of the other nationals are out of touch. Well, Darren Chester Chester also said the National Party can no longer be just a, a bunch of blokes with hats. And I, um, on this podcast, I interviewed Richard Dennis from the Australia Institute a while ago, and he was talking about the um, the demographic challenges that the nationals face because people are leaving the cities because of high house prices and moving to the bush. And that's changing the way, you know, the sort of the structure of the vote in the country. Um, and I, it seems to me that uh, that that message, if they've dumped Darren Chester, that, that message may not be sinking into the nationals. No, and it shows a a divide across the country too. So what we saw there was a real divide between the Victorian Nationals and the Queensland Nationals, you know. So I think that kind of geographic issue is one that they're going to have to grapple with as well. And that's a really difficult one. I mean, you've seen the Labor Party struggle with that between its inner city electorates and its, you know, sort of outer suburban blue collar vote as well. So... They're genuine tensions that I think all political parties have to deal with. Malcolm Turnbull has to deal with as well, with his sort of Queensland vote or what was thought about what that meant, all of the assumptions we make about what that vote means compared to some of his kind of urban um, upper class, you know, the so-called doctor's wives. I hate that saying, but I've just used it. There you go. I think that the Nationals (laughs) do have a broader demographic issue that they have to grapple with. And, I mean, I don't think... I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Darren Chester makes a good point. He starts an important debate internally. I think he'll have it constructively. From my impression of him, he's not an underminer. He'll, you know, he'll cop it. He'll cop it fairly. He won't undermine and he won't snipe. But he will, I think, begin a conversation that the Nationals clearly need to have about their look, who they're appealing to, and how to widen their voter base. Because if they stick to the politics as usual 
then you know their demographic is a dying demographic. Their demographic is not a renewed demographic. They need to actually appeal to a broader range of Australians living in rural Australia. And you're dead right. The demographics are changing. I mean, in my own life, half of my friendship group has moved to rural Australia and they now vote. Now, these people are what you'd call sort of your old-fashioned inner-city lefties, but they are now in rural Australia. And we, we saw that happen in the kind of... um northern New South Wales area a while ago, of course. That already happened. But now perhaps we're seeing the shift in other places as well. And there is a tension, I suppose, between the social values and the economic values. But Darren Chester really, in that Sky interview with David Spears, mentioned a range of different groups in his own electorate that represented a broader group than this kind of big hat kind of demographic. And and look, that's not to say that the Nationals shouldn't continue to wear those hats. They're great hats, and I think that that they do represent that part of Australia as well. It's about how to represent that part of Australia and the growing parts that are moving to those electorates. Joining me now is Shane Oliver, the Chief Economist at AMP Capital. Obviously, the US tax reform bill has passed uh, I think both houses, they've still got a few tweaks to go, but do you think it's priced in in the market? I think it's mainly priced in, but the reason I say mainly as opposed to not fully is that as we go through next year, I think uh, US households, companies and share markets will be surprised at the extent of the stimulus this will provide. Many households in the US, in fact, 40% of US households are actually expecting a tax hike. So come January, when they start to see more money in their pay packet after tax. That's going to come as a bit of a surprise, boosting consumer spending. We've got instant uh, write-off of CapEx spending by US companies. That's going to provide a huge boost, I think, to US business investment. And I don't think this is fully factored into US company profits just yet. So I think there's more upside for the US share market on the back of this, but it's only become a, going to become apparent over time as the stimulus starts to impact the real economy. In fact, Donald Trump turns out to have been a bit of a bait and switch he looked, it looked like he was going to be a populist, uh, and uh, he's, um, he's a capitalist. Well, that's right. He's, uh, yeah, there was that debate at the time that uh, I, I thought, well, you know, the debate is whether we get Donald Trump the populist, the rabble rouser, or whether we get Donald Trump the pragmatic business person. And, of course, we've got the latter. Yes, he has made some uh, rabble rousing comments through the course of the year, um, lots of Twitter comics that have stirred people up, but by the same token, all the focus has not been on a trade war with China and negative things. It's actually been on very positive things, deregulating and particularly this tax cuts. You can you can debate the merits of them. Um, people may agree or disagree with them, but they are pro-business and that's what the share market and financial markets generally have cheered. And what about Australia? Um, uh, obviously, the market in Australia has had a decent run recently, but overall this year, it's lagged um, global global markets and the US in particular. Um, how do we stand as we end the year, do you think? Well, taken on its own, we've had a pretty good year. The market up 7% or so year to date, adding dividends, you know, that gets you to, uh, you had 4.5% to that, so that gets you to about 11%. Um, adding the franking credits, <laughs> you're pushing up to around 12%. So it's, it's, it's been a, a pretty good year or above 12%. So it's been a pretty good year for most of Global shares have done better. US around 20%, Japan similar, Asia emerging markets 30% or so. Um, And I think the reality is that uh, our company profit growth has lagged a little bit. So that's been a bit of a drag. 
And then, of course, we don't have the tech stocks, which have been the uh, shooting the lights out in the US. Um, but we do have some yield sensitive stocks, which have been laggards, you know, the financials, the real estate investment trusts, telcos and so on. So we've had a good year, but uh, yes, we have lagged a little bit. Um, and the risk is that that might remain the case for some time to come. I, I tend to think that it's still a case of if you want the income flow, then Australian shares provide you that good income flow. But if you want growth, then for the time being, global shares is still potentially a better bet on that front. Do you think that's about as simple as it, uh, um, as simple as that? Um, income, uh, Australian shares for income, international shares for growth? Uh, it's as simple as that for now. Eventually, it will change. The cycle always has uh, swings and roundabouts here. Last decade, you know, you could get great income out of Australian shares, but you also got m- much better growth. Um, this decade, it's been uh, a case of, yes, Australian shares for income, global shares for growth. Now, at some point, this will turn around once the Australian economy <coughs> sort of starts to fire up again at some point, then Australian shares will be the place to be in a relative sense. But for the time being, I think we probably remain relative laggards. That said, that's not, uh, you know, getting a 10% plus return out of Australian shares this year isn't a bad thing. In fact, it's a very good thing given inflation has been relatively low. So for people who really want the income and don't want to take the risk of going overseas, they may not understand um, global share markets as well as they understand Australian shares, they may not want to take on the currency risk, then Australian shares are still pretty good. Where, where do you think the risks lie, Shane, and how great are they? The main, I think there's a couple of risks globally. The, the, the first one is that uh, having seen uh, a pretty pragmatic, business-friendly Donald Trump this year. The risk is that as we come into the midterm elections next year and as the inquiry into Donald Trump's campaign and the links with Russia starts to intensify and get closer to Donald Trump, the risk is that he becomes more populist and does things to support his base. For example, you know, tougher measures against Chinese trade, for example, um, or maybe gets closer to a skirmish with uh, North Korea. Um, so that's probably, I think, to keep an eye on in the US. I think ultimately a trade war will be avoided uh, because I think the last thing Donald Trump wants to do is push up US consumer prices um, or prices on Chinese-made consumer goods in the US ahead of the midterm elections because that just won't go down too well. Um, so I think at the end of the day, that that risk will be um, sort of um, contained to some degree, but it could cause a bit more volatility. Another risk is that US inflation could come in stronger than expected, resulting in a more aggressive US Federal Reserve. That's probably a bigger risk, I think, and one certainly worth keeping an eye on. And obviously, um, in terms of our own interests, um, uh, there's the issues around China. Do they go hard in trying to rein in the growth in their debt? Um, certain indications suggest they might do that. But uh, on the other hand, um, the Chinese are ultimately pretty pragmatic as well suggesting that they don't want to tolerate too much of a slowdown in growth. But that issue is certainly worth keeping an eye on. And then, of course, locally, I think the big issue is how much the Sydney and Melbourne property prices, property markets slow down and uh, and what pressures that cause for, for our banks. My feeling is, though, that in the absence of much higher interest rates, which I don't think we're going to see, or much higher unemployment, <clears throat> the more likely scenario is that Australian house prices in those cities come off 5% or so, but we certainly don't see the crash that many people worry about. Joining me now is Stephen Kukoulis of Market Economics. Now, you've been a long-standing critic of uh, the government's record on debt. Anything in this MyEFO to make you feel better about what they're doing? Yeah, just a bit. There's some evidence that the stronger 
economy in the form of uh, the employment numbers, which have been very good for the last 12 months, and also the upside to iron ore prices and coal prices compared with what they were thinking back in the May budget has given them some revenue. At this stage, it looks as if they're hanging on to it. Of course, it's five to six months until the main budget in May 2018, and of course there's chatter that there'll be some income tax cuts there. But for now, if they're building a slightly bigger surplus going into 2021 and uh, the deficits are a little bit narrower, look, you'll, you'll take them while they're here. So uh, anything in particular strike you about the MAIFO? Yeah, look, one of the other things that was interesting that they did scale back their forecast, the economic uh, underpinnings of the whole budget in terms of GDP growth, in terms of wages, were both just a touch lower than uh, was uh, put in the May budget, and that's a bit more realistic. I've noticed that a lot of other market economists and the like have sort of said, look, that's a bit of a, a concession to reality here. Uh, the other thing, of course, is that they've still got um, uh, a projection. Once we get beyond the four decimals, there's, there's two parts of this document. There's the sort of hard numbers that they publish out to 2021, but then there's the sort of charts that they stick out to 2027, they're showing that there's income tax cuts implied once we get out to about five years as they cap their tax to GDP ratio at 23.9%. So, look, either way, the budget is improving, but it does rely on the economy to keep growing. It does rely on wages growth to pick up. And to some extent, it does rely on the Chinese economy to keep at least buying a significant part of our mining output. In fact, those forecasts beyond five years... Um, are uh, what will where are where the t income tax cuts will be? They'll just be handing back bracket creep, as they well, always well, that's do. That's exactly the issue. And as it sort of touched on, it is relying on the economy to be, to be uh, into its thirtieth and thirty first and thirty second year of uh, growth without a recession. Not that anyone is seriously forecasting a recession right now, but yeah, having been in the in the business uh, a number of years ago and looking at these, I was thinking, oh yes, there's a surplus in three years' time, and then being bitterly disappointed when the iron ore price unexpectedly fell and when wages growth fell, which sort of undermined your PAYG tax collections. These numbers are very sensitive to very small changes in the economic parameters. So, um, just for, for a little example, um, a one dollar move in the iron ore price, one US dollar move in the iron ore price, is worth $430 million per year to the budget numbers. So you can imagine a scenario that, I'll be positive for now, that the iron ore price is $20 a tonne higher than it is uh, assumed in the budget by the time we get to 2020. That's uh, over $8 billion per year into the budget coffers via higher company tax co tax collections from the big mining companies. So you've got this... Um, uh, this fickle position on the budget surplus or deficit being massively adjusted simply because the iron ore price goes up or down. It's interesting, you know, I've sort of been looking at some charts over the last couple of days of the various um, projections of debt and the deficits over the past 10 years. And of course, every year the projections have been wrong by, by quite yes. a large amount. Um, and it's you know th these charts are not very complimentary. So, do you think that these are poor reflections on on either Treasury or the government, or just the way life goes? Oh, I have a degree of sympathy. I have a large degree of sympathy for both Treasury and the government and how these things are put together. Uh, and having been in the business of trying to forecast markets and economies for gosh, you know, a number of decades now. And yeah, do, doing your best and doing a reasonable sort of job. The, the fickleness and the erratic nature, particularly in this 
post-GFC world is really hard to pinpoint. You know, Treasury doesn't want to get things wrong. It doesn't, as they say, gild the lily or look at the economy through rose-coloured glasses, to use a couple of cliches. They're actually trying to tell the uh, public and tell the government of the day that if the iron ore price is at a particular level, well, this and the unemployment rates at a particular level and employment growth does what it does, these are the numbers. And to, to some extent, that is correct. But of course, as we know, when we're trying to forecast uh, these sorts of things, and there's a shock coming out of China, there's a Trump issue that emerges out of the US, or there's a banking crisis, or heaven forbid, in Australia, house prices fall sharply next year or the year after, then those forecasts will be wrong. And, and with that, the, the debt, the deficit numbers will be, will be horribly wrong. Now, can you actually put in a forecast that house prices drop 20% in your budget forecast? You can't really. They've got to be conservative. They've got to be sort of picking the trend. And of course, that what makes them vulnerable, as you sort of touched on, that we do get a shock one way or another, and these numbers are, are blown out of the water. It is a little interesting to me that um, uh, prior to the GFC, um, that the, they were all wrong uh, on the upside. You yes. know what I mean, like they were, they were wrong. They, they projected one one number, and the and the revenue came in much higher. Yes. And, and uh, during that period, uh, we had stable government. And during the past uh, ten years, when yes. uh, when all the projections have been wrong the wrong way, that they've they've forecast one thing and it's come in wrong, um, the uh, come in lower. We've had unstable government. Uh, do you think those things are connected? Look, I think they could be, and and despite all the other noise and rhetoric that goes on about politics and politicians and the like, I my hunch, and I, I think it's sort of borne out in various bits of research that the pollsters do, is that the economy does matter to people, um, and probably their own personal financial position matters more than the national position. Although having said that, you know, governments that are seen to be managing the budget poorly, and you think of the change of government in 2013, whether it was their fault or not, the rhetoric that the previous Labor government used around, you know, we've got to return to surplus in a couple of years and we're going to lock in surpluses, the fact that that fell short hurt them really, really badly. It wasn't just issues to do with you know, carbon taxes or these sorts of things, to the extent that they did have an impact as well, of course. But at the end of the day, and you go back to the pre-GFC numbers, as you were touching on, yeah, the economy was good. It was growing. We had unemployment at four point something. We had uh, the stock market yeah, rocketing to 6,700 points in 2007. We had, you know, wages growth that was at three and four and four and a half percent. Yeah, people were feeling pretty, pretty good. And therefore, when it came to push came to shove, we re-elected the, the incumbent now with, oh, gosh, wages are weak or the stock market's down or housing's in a bubble or a bust and the, and the budget's looking like rubbish and these sorts of things. You know, we tend to blame the government for all of those ills, even though they're probably not all that responsible for all that many of them. So just finally, do you, do you think that the government does have room to cut both income taxes and company taxes? Look... Uh, we, we're about to register, by the time we get to 2019, we'll have had 12 consecutive years of budget deficit, over which time, uh, I'll use the gross debt numbers, but we can use net debt, it doesn't really matter. Gross debt will have gone from $50 billion to around about $600 billion. And we've got one relatively small, and as we've just discussed, relatively fickle and variable surplus penciled in to 2021. I'd like to see... 
uh, a couple of years or certainly confirmation that those surplus numbers are, are, are baked in the cake, that they're really there, that they're probably going to be even bigger than they're currently projecting before I'd say, okay, we can give some company an income tax cuts. I'd really like to see a situation where uh, we have at least a couple of sur surpluses well and truly baked in before we can consider tax cuts. But of course, everybody loves tax cuts. They're politically popular. And so again, we've got this issue, and again, you touched on it with a, an unstable government, if you like, where politics may well get in the way of uh, policy. And we may well be going to an election, you know, roughly this time next year with uh, income tax cuts, company tax cuts, and uh, as part of the as part of the agenda, and all on the basis of a, a fairly uh, fragile assumption that we're going to be in surplus in 2021. No musical birthdays today, but anyway, it's Christmas, so let's have my favourite Christmas song, Paul Kelly's "How to Make Gravy." I guess the brothers are driving down from Queensland, and Stella's flying in from the cold. They say it's gonna be a hundred degrees, even more maybe But that won't stop the road Who's gonna make the gravy now? I bet it won't taste the same Well that's it for Talking Finance for the year. Have a great Christmas and a happy and constant New Year. I'll speak to you in early 2018.